Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 19th episode of the PJ Archive. It's an interview with the British singer-songwriter, record producer and DJ, Boy George, who's had success around the world as lead singer of pop band Culture Club and as a solo artist. This entertaining interview took place in central London in 1995 when he was promoting his fifth studio album, Cheapness and Beauty. Boy George, your new album, Cheapness and Beauty, why did you decide on that title? Well, I liked it. And I like the word cheapness, I like the word beauty, because they're relative words. They mean different things to different people. And I've always been attracted to a certain kind of vulnerability, a certain awkwardness in other people. Rogues, I think you call them. So it's kind of like a, a, a summary of my life. You must be very pleased with the way it's been received so far. Well, it's like any sort of album release. There have been great reviews and really scathing, hideous reviews, but opinions are like ourselves, everyone's got one. You know, opinions mean nothing. I think that, um, you know, music is, is an emotion. A lot of critics, they, they, they overanalyze things. The annoying thing is when somebody says it's passionless because I'm very passionate about what I do, so I find that to be the biggest insult. But, you know, often other people's criticisms say more about them than they do about you, so... Staff them. <laughs> There's quite a variety of material on this album. Is that a deliberate thing to sh- sort of show off your versatility, as it were? Well, if you're a fashion designer, you know, you don't keep repeating the collection every year, you know, and... Uh, think of any great album through history it isn't just one sound there's lots of different moods and textures you know some of my favorite Bowie albums when I first bought them I thought what has he done the guy's lost it he's lost his marbles and then within two weeks it was my favorite record on the planet I think that you have to keep challenging yourself you have to keep challenging your audience otherwise you just stagnate and you become Cliff Richard If I may say, there's quite a David Bowie influence on the first few tracks. I know that he actually co-wrote the first track with Iggy Pop, which was your first single. Are they quite, are they heroes of yours? Well, Bowie was uh, definitely a big hero of mine when I was uh, 13. When I first saw David Bowie on the old Gorgeous Test with his arm around Mick Ronson, changed my life, you know. And I think that he is a genius. I mean, you know, his early albums, I still listen to them, you know, they're still mean a lot to me. I'm waiting to hear this new album he's done with Brian Eno. I'm hoping it's going to be uh, something really good because he hasn't done anything that I've loved for a while. But I think he's a genius and he's capable of genius at any moment. I wait eagerly. Are you part of this sort of reflection upon the 70s which everyone's going through at the moment? I thought I was a reflection on the 80s, please. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I think that you have to have a healthy respect for what's gone before. But you also have to move forward. I think that I've always had a respect for, you know, all kinds of music from like jazz of the 30s to punk to Sinatra, anything. I mean, I love music, you know, there isn't any limitations to what I enjoy. I just like good music, whether it's good reggae or good funk or good thrash or good jazz, whatever, just got to be good. Now, you've recently released your autobiography as well. Is there quite a lot of reflecting going on in your life at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's um, obviously the, the autobiography um, set up a lot of old memories, a lot of old characters came back into view, and it did influence this record. I mean, it made me sort of 
think about things and uh, a lot of the songs are nostalgia based dealing with old lovers friendships getting revenge you name it it's all in there now all but three tracks on the album are produced by a woman are we supposed to read anything into that? well only if you're a misogynist <laughs> I mean I don't think it matters whether she's male or female um, are there any differences in the studio to working with a man and working with a woman? I guess, you know, there is a kind of female energy which can be very interesting. I mean, this album was interesting because, uh, you know, Jessica being female and, you know, and, and some of the members of the band were quite, you know, they're quite muso-ish, macho-ish. So I think some of them found it difficult. But for me, it was a very enjoyable experience. I mean, I didn't feel... I don't feel threatened by women. I'm not your average man, so I don't feel threatened by female energy. You know, I feel kind of um, invigorated by it if it's the right energy. So, you know, it's not a threat to me. I don't have any of that kind of usual sort of male ego stuff around women. So it was a great experience for me. One of the three tracks produced by John Themis is Il Adore, which is your next single. Is that how you pronounce it? Il Adore. Il Adore. So what's the story behind that one then? Illidore is a song about my friend Stevie Hughes, who was a makeup artist who died two years ago. He was a laughing, screaming, tumbling queen, and when he died, as, a, as is often the case with AIDS, you know, it kind of strips away all the colour, you know, it kind of eats away at your body. And it's hard to kind of imagine the person, you know, it's hard to celebrate their colour when, the, you know, when they're dying of AIDS. So Illidor for me is a celebration of the sadness, but also of the joy, you know, because when someone goes, you have to look at, you know, you have to think of your memories of them and what they meant to you and, you know, what they added to your life. So that's really the kind of idea behind the song. Now, throughout the album, there's one or two sort of uh, answer phone messages and things like that. Is that you getting revenge on some of your enemies? No, I asked permission from everybody before I used the messages. Um, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them relate to the songs. There's a message from Marilyn. I actually asked Marilyn to leave me a message to put on the album. And uh, he called me back and said, I can't think, think of anything you put me on the spot, you arsehole. <laughs> so people will read much more into that than actually there was. But, um, it, you know, he agreed to do it. What's this album supposed to tell us about where Boy George is at now? Oh, God, you're getting deep. Um... <laughs> I think that what I've been striving towards for years is to make a record that was very kind of clear and vivid, direct. And I think this record is the start. Um, I mean, I'm still learning new things. I'm still exploring. So I don't know, really. I think that if people can, can feel some of the emotion on the record, enjoy it, feel some of the anger, you know, enjoy the melodies, I don't know if I'm trying to tell them where I'm at, you know. I mean, I think what this record is saying is that, you know, I'm complex, human beings are complex, and that's really what this album is about, being complex. I mean, the media want everything to be a soundbite, you know, you're either a winner or a loser, or a junkie or an ex-pop star, or whatever. It's all soundbites, and I'm afraid life ain't like that, mate. How much happier are you being a solo artist than as opposed to being with a band? Well, I do have a band, but uh, it's not like a marriage. I mean, Culture Club was like a sort of marriage where, you know, there was a lot of jealousy and bickering and, 
not to start with, but it got that way. I think that uh, the people I have around me at the moment sort of respect me for what I've done before. And um, obviously I'm a lot more grown up now. I mean, I'm not so demanding and petulant as I was 10 years ago. So things just are different generally. It's more, the whole atmosphere is different. Yeah, of course, we first knew you as the lead singer of Culture Club. How did your life change with the success of their first hit, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Well, it's quite hard to put it into words, but you can read the book. Um, I mean, you know, you obviously have incredibly unnatural pressures put upon you. And I think very often it brings out the worst parts of your personality. You know, um, I defy anybody to stay sane under such pressures. You know, we really, I think, lost it for a while. What's happened to the rest of the band now, and are you still in contact with them? Only when I get out my Ouija board. No, I'm only joking. Uh, I see Roy, who lives in LA. Roy and his wife Alison are still friendly, and uh, they're the only two really that I have any contact with. Um, John, I don't see. Mikey, I haven't seen for a few years either. I don't know what they're doing. Is it a source of regret that you don't see them all, that you don't see John in particular? Not at all. I wouldn't fucking with your dick, honey. <laughs> Do you? Thank you for that. <laughs> Do you get uh, asked to do reunions of Culture Club? And, and if so, you know, would you ever consider it? About four years ago, we did talk about having uh, a go at making another album. We went off to some farm in Wiltshire or wherever it was, and we wrote some songs. And we actually did write some brilliant songs together. But it was too difficult to be around John. It was like we just argued. It was like... I couldn't see myself kind of, I say this in the book, I couldn't see myself existing in a kind of post-Abba nightmare, you know, it was like, I don't think I was grown up enough at that time to be able to say, oh, well, you know, whatever, let bygones be bygones. And also, I think if I'd stayed in Culture Club, I would never have developed, not only as a human being, but also as a musician. I just couldn't have developed in that situation, so it was really important for me to move on. Um, I may actually use some of those songs that we wrote together. There's a couple of really good ones that I might use on a future record. And I certainly would work with Roy again. I mean, Roy, you know, I, I love dealing and I would work with Roy at any time and write songs with him. You know, there'll always be that connection. But, you know, to, to reform Culture Club, no way. Not even for, like, millions I wouldn't do it. How often do you listen to Culture Club's music and how do you feel about it now? Well, I don't sit at home and listen to it, but obviously when I do interviews going around the world, everyone always plays certain culture club hits and I'm very proud of it I think we we did some great records I think we got complacent around the third album we got lazy took it all for granted but I think there were some real gems there and certainly the whole experience was you know it was something that I'm really proud of and it was enlightening and a nightmare in the same time you know but uh, I'm not ashamed of it when Karma Camellia became a culture club's biggest ever hit you became one of the most famous people in the world. To what extent did you really enjoy that? Well, Culture Club was our kind of epitaph, you know. Um, it was the kind of, what I call the pinnacle of our success, you know. It was like, really, it was all downhill after that. <laughs> it's like, um, what did I think about that? Well, I guess I was dizzy at the time. You know, I didn't really think about it. I mean, I didn't analyse it. It was like... Everybody wanted to talk to me, everybody wanted to interview me, and I just kind of went on with it. But wasn't it seemed to us that it, it was something you'd wanted all your life to be the most famous person in the world? 
Well, I guess um, I don't think I wanted to be the most famous person in the world. I just wanted to be noticed. Well, it's not exaggeration. <laughs> Let's not get hysterical here. Um, I don't know. Well, it wasn't all it was cut out to be, I'll tell you that much, Chuck. It weren't what it was cut out to be. Like Take That and these 17 now, it seemed that Culture Club could have just carried on being at the top forever if they just carried on producing material. Do you feel that was true? If we'd probably made the right records, you know, if we'd... I think it's easy to have a career if you keep doing the same thing. People like familiarity. Um, but I think, uh, for me, you know, creati creatively, that would have been really depressing. I mean, I can't think of anything worse, really. You might as well go and work in a shoe shop, you know. What's the difference? I mean, I think, you know, I don't want to do the same thing. I mean, you know, if you're a fashion designer, no one expects you to do the same collection every year. So why should you do the same record every year? You know, it's sort of mad thing about pop music. I mean, if you think of the Beatles or Bowie, I mean, God, they were totally I mean every Bowie album was like a new experience you know it was like a new drug think of the Beatles you know they went from being like wham to being this kind of psychedelic you know what I mean if you think of songs like love love me do which were terrible I thought and then you go on stuff like Sgt Pepper and the White Album and stuff like that that's normal I mean we look back at that music and we say how great it was do you know what I mean and people are saying Gary Barlow's a genius get a grip it's often been said that the demise of Culture Club was due to your involvement in drugs. How do you react to that? Well, if John Moss is a drug, then I guess that's true. Because I think it was more to do with John than drugs. I mean, you know, John and I really were the, the reason why the band did so well, because we were madly in love with each other, and it really fueled Culture Club. And when things started to go wrong in our relationship, the band ceased to be of any real interest to me. You know, I lost heart in it and um, <clears throat> I felt like I was going through the motions so I think it was more to do with John than anything and then the drugs were kind of like a follow-on from that really at that stage in your career you seem to be able to have anything you desired in the world perhaps except John Moss perhaps but oh, I, I mean, had him do right <laughs> <laughs> not at that stage anyway. I did I, mean, I had him on news occasions <laughs> I had him after as well <laughs> But, um, I could have him now if I wanted. <laughs> getting serious, though. But, I mean, is it a case of rock stars such as yourself getting involved in drugs because you can have anything you want in the world? You have to sort of throw an obstacle in your own path, as it were. Is there any truth in that theory? I think that's too simplistic. I think that a lot of people who are driven to be successful are people who are basically very often from dysfunctional families. They're very needy kind of dramatic people who want attention who want to be loved and they see success as a way of being fulfilled as a way of being truly accepted and being somebody and when you get there you realize that it isn't you know that you end up feeling almost as lonely as you were before so then you start looking for other ways to anesthetize yourself be it drugs be it alcohol be it you know excessive sex or getting into the whole money trip, cars, houses, these are all drugs. What I've realized is that you can't, nothing external can fill you up. You know, you have to kind of like, and it sounds very corny, but you have to kind of love yourself. You have to really find some true value in yourself, being an ordinary person. You know, because a lot of 
famous people, they get successful and they start thinking they're better than other people because they sell records or because people tell them they're wonderful. They're actually better than someone who works in a shoe shop. And they're actually not. And that's where they go wrong because, you know, I don't want to get crude, but we all shit, piss and bleed. And it's like, I'm no different to you are. You know what I mean? I've got a different hat on and a bit of maquillage. But at the end of the day, I still have to go to the toilet. You know, and all the rest of the things that you have to do. It's like, it, people just need to get real. You know? Some people would find it hard to understand how you cannot love yourself when the whole world loved you. But isn't that the great cosmic joke? Isn't that the wonderful irony of life, you know? Very often, we can't see our true qualities. It needs other people to say, this is what I like about you. This is what's great about you. Very often you can't see that. And that's true for a lot of people. I mean, the world is full of emotionally damaged people. You know, some more se severely than others. And I think a lot of entertainers are people who are, you know, sort of emotional misfits. And I think that's why they're so extreme. That's why the need is so great, you know. To what extent do you regret your involvement in drugs and what it did to your career? Well, I think regret is such a pointless emotion because nothing, you know, even God can't change the past. No one can change what has been. I think the, the clever thing to do is to learn from the mistakes you make. There's a saying, you know, the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. People unfortunately have to go down that road very often even though you warn them even though you preach to them and tell them look look what happened to me you know I mean I knew all about Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Brian Jones people have to take that road and you just have to make sure you don't get killed or take the wrong turning I mean it's really human nature I don't think you can stop it how do you feel when you see photographs or footage of yourself in those days when you were virtually at death's door well some of them are kind of spooky I mean, I've never really seen any interviews because I didn't really do many interviews at that point. There was one that I saw which was quite difficult to watch. But um, to be honest with you, you know, I don't sit around thinking about it. It was nearly eight years ago when I stopped taking heroin and I stopped taking any kind of drugs. So I don't even think about it. It's, it might as well have been Doris Day or, you know, Lady Antoinette. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? It's so distant for me. It's nearly 10 years, you know. Everything I Own seemed to be a big comeback record for you. How important was its success for you? Well, I always thought Everything I Own is a kind of national sympathy vote. It was like, oh, poor old George, he's been through the wars, let's buy his record. And then, of course, they ignored the next one. <laughs> Thanks! <laughs> I mean, you know, it was a funny time. It was a really weird time. I think people actually felt sorry for me, and that's why they bought that record. I mean, I really do. I'm not being... You know, I'm being really honest, I actually thought they thought, oh, poor old George, let's go and buy his record. But it was quite nice to be number one anyway. <laughs> had you planned to go solo at that stage, or do you hope to get a band together again? Um, no, I didn't really want to ever be in a band again at that point. I mean, I just thought the idea of being in a band with four other egomaniacs was just like the last thing on my mind, you know. But I didn't realise that I was one of the egomaniacs at that point. <laughs> Of course, now I have realised. And I'm kind of, I have a band now, but it's, as I said before, it's, it's so different. I mean, because I'm different, and so the whole atmosphere has changed. To what extent, since Culture Club, do you still pine for the worldwide acclaim that you had then? Well, I mean, this is a kind of idea that a lot of journalists have, that you kind of sit around stroking your gold discs, you know, 
plaiting your dreadlock wig. I mean, Boy George left the building a long time ago. Boy George Circa Culture Club. I mean, in 19, or I don't know what the year was, but when I made Sold, I think it was a very, very brief period, and I say this in the book, where I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to kind of recapture that kind of success? But I got bored of that very quickly because I realised that it wasn't going to happen and I needed to move on, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, I've constantly moved on and I would never, ever, ever like to be in the situation I was in 1984, not in a million years. It's the last thing on my mind, you know, you don't want to sell records. I feel like I have my own corner now. I do what I do. It's kind of my own thing. And if I have a hit now and then, that's a bonus. Whoopee. <laughs> Records like The Crying Game brilliantly demonstrated your fantastic voice, but many people reckon your talents are underused. What do you say to that? Well, my talents are unrecognised. <laughs> not, not underused. <laughs> They're not underused. <laughs> but we haven't heard enough of you. That's what, I think that's what people think sometimes. Well, I've got an album out now. Yeah. Go and buy it. Right. <laughs> Enjoy a bathe. <laughs> Suave. But do you think you might regret the sort of the missing years when you didn't produce anything? As I said before, you know, there's no point kind of sitting around thinking, oh, I mean, obviously, you know, there are other things that you have to do when you're a human being. You know, you can't always be a functioning, creative musician. There are times when you just can't work. I mean, I had a kind of time, you know, obviously when I needed to get my life back together. So I don't really, I see those years as being very productive because they brought me to where I am now. So I don't regret any of that at all. I mean, it was very necessary that it happened in the way that it did. With Bow Down Mister, there was a lot of um, publicity about you being a Harry Krishna. Are you still a Harry Krishna? Because we don't hear much about that anymore. Well, I'm a Harry Krishna. I'm the mate of the Krishnas. <laughs> um, am I a Harry Krishna? I don't know. It depends on your point of view. I mean, there are, within the Krishna consciousness movement, there are different degrees of devotion. I mean, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a pure devotee because I, you know, live with a man and I drink alcohol, whatever, but I do love Krishna. I'm definitely a follower of the philosophy and uh, I'm a fringy. They call people like me fringes, but I'm a, a big, big time Krishna fan. So you're not as devoted as you were before because you don't seem well, to... I've always been as devoted as I am, you know. I mean, the fact that I um, sang a song about Krishna and brought the holy name to millions of people around the world um, is a very important thing because in Christian consciousness um, you know Krishna's name is the same as his person so you know I think I've got a little bit of redemption there at least I'm told so <laughs> How do gay people react to the effect you've had on their cause? Do they think it's a negative effect or a positive effect? Well I guess it depends on your point of view I mean you know people often talk of gay people as if we're a species you know like black people or policemen or something you know there is there is no such thing as a gay person just as there isn't a black person there are lots of different types of homosexual lots of different types of black people you know um okay, the gay community <laughs> the gay community and well not to be proper don't have to be proper around me really i don't know i mean you know i've had letters from people over the years who've said you know culture club our music you know, the fact that I was on the pop scene helped them to kind of come to terms with their sexuality. There are other people who have said, oh, you know, you're not political enough. I mean, I don't talk as a gay man, I talk as a human being. Prejudice isn't exclusive to homosexuals. There are a lot of people out there suffering. Um, you know, and I don't choose to live in a ghetto. I'm proud of what I am, I'm proud of my sexuality. You know, I'm not, um, but I'm not kind of like trying to recruit people. 
You know, I'm not trying to create a gay army. You know, I don't want to live separately from the rest of the human race. I am part of the human race, you know. My parents are straight, my brothers and sisters are straight. Some of my best friends are straight. Boom, boom. <laughs> You've lost a lot of friends, both to AIDS and to drugs and things. Why do we not see you campaigning a bit more on those aspects? Well, uh, I think I do campaign quite heavily for, um, you know, AIDS charities and... Uh, but as far as drugs are concerned, you know, I don't want to become the Bob Geldof of drugs. I'm a musician, I'm not a drug counsellor. You know, I've written a book, and if people want to read my story, and if it can help them in any way, then great, let them read it. But that's not what I do. I'm not Claire Rayner. You know, I'm a, I'm a musician. All I can do, really, is show people that there is a way out of, of drug addiction. If you're in, in that hole, that you can move on from that. And I think in that way, you know, I'm setting quite a good example, but that's not what I'm about, you know. One article I read recently said that, well, was quoted you as saying that sometimes you couldn't be bothered to get out of bed in the morning, you just don't feel like it. Is this a sort of, sometimes you're a bit sort of ambivalent about life in general these days? Not at all. I think that might have been in kind of past tense, you know, right. during the kind of the aftermath of, of, of the drugs that, you know, there were times when I didn't get out of bed, actually. It wasn't that I didn't feel like it, I just didn't bother. <laughs> I spent many a day in bed watching soap operas like... Uh, what was that awful thing? Santa Barbara was my favourite. You know, but no, these days I'm up at 8.30. I'm up at the crack of dawn. Whoever she is. <laughs> I'm up at someone's crack at dawn. <laughs> Are there many interests outside of music that you want to explore that you haven't, like acting or politics, for instance? I can't think of anything more ghastly than being a politician. All that lying and, you know, secrecy, you know. I couldn't think of anything worse. Um, I'm, I run a dance label called More Protein, that kind of keeps me quite busy, I DJ. So I have other interests other than being a musician and a singer. But most of my interests are in music. You know, I really enjoy the kind of creative side of it. And, uh, you know, that's what I kind of do more and more of. Because you've always been a, been a sort of trendy figure for the youth, do you worry about getting older? and that, uh, how that effect will have on other people. No, Olaf, I've been doing it for years. It's inevitable, you know, you can't not get older, you just do. I think whatever you do, do it with style. So you'll grow older <laughs> gracefully, then? Well, I'd like to grow old disgracefully, actually, but, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, I'll, you know, I kind of see myself in the vein of kind of Quentin Chris or something like that, you know, a bit of a mauve rinse. Nice big hats and, you know, painted nails. Do you think you'll ever be conventional? I think I am conventional. I think you're the one that's not conventional. <laughs> you're the one with the problem. <laughs> you and the rest of your listeners, get out quick! <laughs> Will you ever drop the boy from Boy George? Um, it's really not important to me. I mean, I never, you know, you can be old Boy George. I mean, people are always going to call me Boy George. There's no, no point getting in a pickle about it, you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of the least important things about my life, I have to say. <laughs> Do you have a message for your fans? Yeah, Una Paloma Blanca. <laughs> <laughs>